Hello and welcome to this interview special episode of Tech EU podcast. I am your host Andrei Degeler and today I would like to play two interviews that in a way look at the same problem, how to adjust to a crisis reality that is changing very quickly. First, let us talk about the good old event industry, which has certainly seen quite some adjustment this year. The first interview of today, recorded by Robin Wouters, is with Bogdan Yordake, the founder of the conference called How to Web and also a bunch of other initiatives. Let's check it out. So, hey, this is Robin Wouters from Tech.eu, and I'm joined here, as per usual, remotely, uh, this time all the way from Bucharest, Romania, uh, by Bogdan Yordash. We go way back, but uh, maybe for the listeners, uh, can you tell us uh, really briefly who you are? Hey, Robin. Uh, thanks for the invite. Thanks for having me. So, uh, my name is Bogdan. I'm uh, the founder of How to Web. How to Web has been a, a very old already conference on startups and innovation uh, taking place in uh, Bucharest, Romania, uh, started back in 2010. Uh, we drew a lot of inspiration from the web uh, for the very old of us. We kick-started the uh, How to Web back in 2010. Uh, since then, we've done a bunch of things, a bunch of uh, spin-offs, uh, most notably the Tech Hub Bucharest uh, co-working space, MVP Academy Accelerator, Etc. Etc. But we still uh, focused in the last years very much on the conference, which uh, developed quite well. 2019 was definitely our biggest and best edition. Great. Uh, yes, we're definitely going to talk uh, more about what you actually do. Uh, but you're one of these people who's super well connected in uh, Romania and in general, like Eastern Europe, which I think is a little bit uh, less known for a lot of the the investors and entrepreneurs that, that we reach at TechEU. Um, so maybe like in 2010, of course, the world was completely different. So maybe when you started How to Web, what, what was the situation uh, Romania or maybe even broader Central Eastern Europe was in back then? Like why was there a need for a How to Web to emerge? Yeah, so, uh, my God, like 2010 was uh, basically a different uh, millennia. It, it's, it's so different. Uh, just to give you an example, back in 2008, I was uh, starting a startup, technology startup, and uh, the best angel deal that I could find on the market, and I was really well placed to get an angel deal, was uh, 10,000 euros for 51% of the company. So that, oh. was, that was the status of the market when it came to, to startups. Generally, the industry was just starting up. We had Bitdefender being launched in uh, 2000 and uh, Avangate um, launched in 2007. But then with 2008, 2009, mostly because the uh, launch of Seedcamp, we had a new, a new wave of startups coming out of Bucharest. Just to give you a few examples, there was uh, Uberview who went through Seedcamp in yeah. 2008, then Brainiant in 2009. And it just, it felt like there is this disconnect between this new generation of tech entrepreneurs in which I was kind of included as well and the business status quo of Bucharest in that time. So that's the uh, problem that we wanted to tackle with how to web. We wanted to connect the local industry to global money and good practices. And uh, this is how the first edition started in, in 2010. Great. Well, I can't even remember if I joined for the, well, I think it was the second or the third edition, uh, but I definitely remember actually launching or at least showing the logo of Loco for the first time because it was like a month after we launched in 2013. 
And it, like I agree, like you need sort of that event a business to to showcase the innovation that's going on locally to an international crowd. But it also helps to bring local ecosystem players together, which I guess is also the reason why this sort of um, evolved into also starting something like Tech Hub Bucharest. So, so I'm guessing there was a need for for events and places uh, for people, like-minded people to really get together, right? Yes, definitely. And uh, I think because we were very early, I mean, uh, how to web... I mean, when we launched How to Web, we basically introduced in the local press the term startups. Usually in the beginning, when I was going to meetings to present How to Web, people didn't know what startups are. And um, being such uh, early pioneers of this uh, industry helped us to become a focal point of uh, many, many things that have happened over the years. Launching TechU would be one, uh, but also John Bradford, who is a veteran uh, accelerator specialist basically in Europe has launched his first acceleration program in how to at how to web 2010 in Bucharest the first t-shirts were there so yeah we have a long history well John is also a co-founder of TechU so that fits in nicely with the with the theme here uh, but it also led to you if I don't um, remember um, miss correctly you were also an investor at some point right so you started seeing these opportunities and sort of meeting all these startups and you sort of turned to the investment side as well um, yeah, I worked as an investor uh, since uh, 2013, and uh, even now I'm advising startups to uh, raise money and uh, put that decks together, connect with the right people, like very basic stuff like that. But especially for the uh, debutant uh, founders, it makes a big difference. And yes, I've been working with uh, I worked with uh, 3TS and with uh, GCAT Ventures, and I also had my own um, acceleration program. At some point. Great. Well, that, that's sort of a long way to introduce uh, who you are and what you do. Uh, but the reason that we're actually having this conversation is because sadly, I was supposed to go to How to Web in Bucharest in, um, in October, uh, on my birthday, no less. Um, but unfortunately, the conference was canceled. So th- this is what prompted me to have this conversation with you and record it at the same time. But uh, what happened? Well, COVID happened, right? Uh, not only to, to us, but basically to the, to the world. Um, COVID happened and um, we were basically in denial for about uh, two weeks and then we realized the impact of what's um, uh, what's happening and um, firstly we decided to move the conference online and then we decided to, to cancel it. Um, so um, it has been a, a rough year for everybody who's doing uh, event organization for sure. Yeah, and especially because you just mentioned like 2019 was your best year. You're sort of on a new trajectory there. Uh, so it's a real shame. But but also, like I remember you organized a a conference about remote working not so long ago. I also participated, which which was a virtual event or a hybrid. I don't really know what, if it was also a physical aspect to it. But what, was there no chance of uh, just moving How to Web online? Like what, why was the decision made to cancel it altogether rather than make it virtual? Uh, well, this is a very personal personal take on things. So um, the, the way we approached it was the, the following. In the beginning, we said, okay, we're just going to do it online. Everybody's going to do now conferences online and it's going to be great. And then we thought, well, hold on a minute. Let's do another event until How to Web to see what this thing with uh, online events is. And um, we've done RemoteCon, which I think has been really it has been definitely a good event, but I realized that there is absolutely no way to match in an online setting, not even 
probably not even 10% of the value that Hout Web brings. And um, I think if we would have focused on an online event, and again, this is very, uh, very subjective opinion, so I don't want to offend uh, my fellow comrades for organizing online events, but it would have been basically impossible to organize, to, to provide value to the participants and to provide value to our partners and to, you know, have a good experience after all. It just, it wasn't possible. So we said, okay, uh, instead of trying to adapt um, offline products to a digital world, let's create new products which are digital first, but they tackle the same needs as the uh, needs that are covered by the conference. So because if you go digital, the product doesn't move digital. The needs of, the, of your customers uh, become digital because it doesn't have any other channel to fill them. So if I'm a conference, but my conference happens in a browser tab, in the next browser tab, you have LinkedIn, you know, for networking, you have YouTube for content. Um, I don't know, you have uh, Google for discovering uh, business opportunities uh, or discovering software or uh, stuff like that. Or there is just the, the competition. I mean, the, the quality of your product by comparison to the competition, it just doesn't move the needle. So that's why we decided to, to cancel this year's edition. Also thinking about the fact that I think most probably we won't have big scale, uh, large scale offline events next year as well. Um, so, you know, I have a team. I've, I've done my best to chart this course uh, for, for the next two years, basically, because that's how long I think it will take until we have uh, large scale um, offline events. Um, if it wasn't just one edition, you know, maybe the partners would have been okay. The participants would have been okay. Okay, it's not a great success, but we've made this happen. And then next year, we're going to do it properly. But I don't think we can do it properly next year. So we need a plan for the next two years at least. Yeah, well, I think it's always a good idea to plan for the worst case scenario, of course. Um, but uh, tell me, like, what, what are some of the things that you're developing to sort of compensate for both the financial loss and also because it, it frees up time, of course, uh, from your team? So obviously you're working on, on other things right now. Do you mind getting uh, a little bit more deep into what you're building and why? Yeah, so we started with something uh, with a jobs to be done analysis. I don't know if you are familiar with the jobs to be done framework. I've had nope. the immense... Uh, fortune of having um, uh, Bob Mesta as a speaker last year. Bob is one of the architects of the Jobs to be Done framework. He worked with it. Uh, he worked on it with uh, Klaus Christensen. Um, so really, like, really smart guy. And uh, Bob helped me analyze the needs of the conference participants using uh, Jobs to be Done. We figured out that there are some things for which we can develop very specific products. But also in a context where the digital environment actually helps us, doesn't, it's not a barrier, but it's actually, actually an, an enhancer. Um, and the things that we've chose to work on uh, are basically three things. We now have a one-hour uh, live show uh, where we have a um, discussion between two founders or, I don't know, tech experts, investors, etc., on a specific topics, and the audience can ask questions live. And then that's something that we record and we broadcast on different channels, like podcast, videocast, uh, content, etc. Then 
Um, we have a series of online workshops that we run with different specialists who are teaching remote. So that's also uh, an interesting um, take because usually you could not have access to these guys if it was to do only in-class uh, workshops. And then we have the Startup Spotlight online uh, competition. This is really interesting. I mean, we did at how to Web every year. We had this, um, let's say, jewel of the crown, uh, which was our uh, matchmaking and uh, pitching uh, competition for startups with really good results. Like the winners of the last years have all raised money, have generally been successful, etc. So it was really packed with investors and uh, business executives. We decided to change it from a two days program to a two months program uh, and just provide the exact same service that we would have provided um, in an offline setting, but provided online. Because now if you know every business meeting is actually a Zoom call, we can schedule these startups for some pretty good Zoom calls because we have a very large network. It was just more difficult to get people to Bucharest. But if we can connect with the world, we can definitely, definitely uh, provide a lot of value. So I think we have uh, partners from a lot of the top European venture funds uh, as mentors in the program. Um, and uh, yeah, that's, so again, this is a scenario where the digital environment creates more the value rather than less. Yeah, that's just the thing though, because if you think about it, like everyone could do virtual events theoretically, right? So it levels the playing field uh, in a big way. You don't need to invite speakers, etc. So, so most of the focus is going to be uh, in this case on on selecting the right startups, uh, really curating the experience, making it really worthwhile for the investors to participate and and, and meet the right ones. Um, but it also, in a way, you know, it's not that high barrier and entry. So, so what actually? do you think gives you an edge compared to other companies that might go into sort of matchmaking startups investors? Because I, I see this being done a lot and I don't think it's very easy to replicate from offline to online. Yeah, I mean, the answer here is very simple. We have an extraordinary network. Uh, we, we are in this business for 10 years. Uh, we have had basically all, almost all the like biggest funds of the planet coming to Houtweb at some point. And we're definitely connected with most of them, uh, you know, via LinkedIn or uh, other stuff and um, almost anybody in this world can uh, I mean it, it's it's okay to take a one hour call with the biggest startup program from the city that gave um, the world UI path and uh, be defender so it's like it's it's a such a simple value proposition I mean nobody said no until now we'll see <laughs> That's a, that's a really good point, actually, that you make. Like, how much has the, the emergence of uh, Bitdefender in the past, but of course, UiPath is, is, is a really big name nowadays. Uh, how much does that make your job easier, in a way, to sort of position Romania and your network uh, to, to international people? Uh, definitely much easier. I mean, um, UiPath, I mean, we always hope to have at some point a unicorn because we knew that this would position ourselves um, ourselves on the European map better than before but you know we by accident the fastest growing european b2b startup of all times uh, happened to be in bucharest i mean that that's a bit of pure luck and everybody knows that and uh, you know nowadays when i want to take meetings with people uh, everybody says yes and the first question is uh, who's going to be the next ui path uh, i don't know we have a few candidates let's hope we'll see another company growing like that but i think it's almost 
impossible to to see it in the near future. I mean, it'd be just uh, too much of a coincidence. Damn it! I was just going to ask you who, who's going to be the next two iPads. <laughs> I've already answered it. But yeah, but I mean, in general, do do you think the ecosystem in in Romania, but also like beyond the borders, right? Uh, your neighboring countries. Do you think you're you're reaching a point where you could say it's mature enough for you know international investors to really start paying attention and to scout the market more more intensively at this point? Absolutely, but they are actually doing it. Uh, so it's not even a, a question of. Uh, if it makes sense anymore, they're, they're already doing it, uh, actively. Um, and, um, it's not, again, it's true. It's not only UI pass. We have big tech companies coming out of, uh, I don't know, Poland. Uh, we have some very interesting companies, uh, coming from Bulgaria and Hungary. So definitely there is a bigger story here, a story that has started to, you know, develop probably around 10 years ago when, um, the first VC funds appeared, the first conferences, the first co-working spaces, startup programs, and 10 years is a long period. So we've, we've been brewing steadily for, for 10 years, the, the local industry. And um, yeah, I think uh, it has really developed. I mean, I don't have you know, a specific uh, number to compare it to Western Europe or to France or Germany, but um, we are not in the dark ages anymore. Definitely not. Yeah, that's very encouraging to hear, uh, and I know that's that's very much the case for European investors. But um, so, so I'm actually participating in an online event later this week, right? So, and the topic of uh, of the discussion is going to be on ecosystems. And my theory, the one that I put forward as a topic for the session, is that you can basically start a great company anywhere. I know it's a cliche, but it's actually true. But it's also true that you cannot really scale a company to the size of a UiPath, for example, from anywhere. You really need to, Correct. you know, at some point you need to sort of go out of the ecosystem and then start building a base elsewhere. Uh, UiPath, I know, is now headquartered in the US, for example, uh, and also recruiting all over the world, now no longer just in Romania. But like, do you think Eastern European or Central Eastern European countries in general will ever have the ecosystem that really is required to scale a company to become global leaders in their fields? Or will it always be sort of a, where you start and you can still have a, like a solid base there, but you'll have to move out elsewhere to scale? Um, so from a very practical point of view, the barrier of scaling a company beyond uh, Series A, basically, is that you don't have a lot of executives who know how to uh, build that company. Um, so you don't, I mean, um, with UiPath, uh, they've done a wonderful job until, until they've uh, uh, raised their Series A. But at that point, they need executives from outside to help them scale fast. There was no such talent in Romania and generally in the region. There is no such talent yet. Um, I think, uh, you know, in 10 years from now, if you have, after you have UiPath and a number of other, other companies exiting, Part of those people who contributed to their growth can be employed by new fast-growing companies. And obviously, there is the other way uh, that you can do this, which is the Bitdefender way. Bitdefender uh, has still Romanian management all the way up, even even though they are uh, present in the uh, uh, U.S. and they are growing uh, really well. Uh, and the headquarters is still in Bucharest, but it took them 20 years to hire people, train them, some didn't feel probably, you know, uh, and uh, get on this uh, uh, trajectory. So there is this model as well. But um, yeah, I think it's, everything is now, it's about, uh, it's about the people. I think that's the biggest barrier. Uh, capital will follow. 
Yeah, yeah, it's definitely true. But but leaving aside maybe talent and capital, like there's there's multiple aspects to an ecosystem that you have to take into account: infrastructure, culture, you know, policy, um, corporates. uh, You you need to have those to buy from you, to buy you, or just to generally be around, to 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 maybe even increase the talent pool, etc. So where do you see Romania sort of um, having issues? Like I, I know there's really good things happening, but where 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 are the the problems? So until you hit the Series A round, where you have this specific set of problems of not having access to good people, etc., I see uh, corporates uh, being uh, really really involved in the ecosystem, and I think uh, in many ways many of the local programs are actually constructive because I've seen corporate programs which are not really constructive in other places. The policy is almost non-existent, which is not necessarily a bad thing. You know, all the Romanian companies, they uh, get, um, they, they, they incorporate in Romania and then they go abroad to London in the past, uh, or Delaware, uh, or the Netherlands. And um, then what I still see is um, a lack of very, how to say, uh, smart capital in the early stages. Definitely there could be more smart capital in the early stages. And um, we had two EIF programs and probably will have some more in the future, which have formed, have helped uh, the formation of a few venture funds and then uh, the uh, financing of a few good tech companies, but there's definitely more need for capital. Um, and um, part of the reason is that we still don't have a lot of active angels investors in the uh, ecosystem, which have had significant technology successes uh, in the past. So we have people who have made, uh, you know, good legitimate fortune from real estate or from other business verticals, and uh, they don't necessarily understand the technology space really well. Uh, they can provide a fresh uh, angle, obviously, if, uh, I don't know, you're doing a prop tech startup, but otherwise it's a bit difficult. So I think um, higher quality to early stage capital would be one of the key elements that I would uh, I would hope for in the next years. Great. Well, thanks for giving us uh, some insights there. Uh, I would have loved to have this conversation uh, next month in Bucharest. Uh, in person, of course, especially because it was the 10-year anniversary of sort of the first How to Web and my birthday. Unfortunately, uh, shit happened and here we are. But hopefully we'll have a, a chance to catch up in person soon. Uh, wishing you all the best with Startup Spotlight and whatnot. And hopefully we'll have a How to Web uh, back again in 2021. Thank you so much, Vagdan, for your time. Thank you. Our second conversation today is with Adelina Peltea, the VP Growth of Holded, and also Robin Heers, founder and CEO at Alliance Europe. You may remember that recently we at TechEU announced a partnership with Alliance and the Vleric Business School for an upcoming interactive masterclass. This one is designed specifically for marketing and growth teams that are working at European tech scale-ups, and Adelina is actually one of the mentors in this masterclass. So, what I wanted to do is I wanted to ask what it is that she will teach during the masterclass and how it actually helped her to do her own job. But first, of course, we would like to know more about who Adelina is and what is it that she is doing. Hi, everyone. I'm Adelina Peltea, currently VP of Growth at Holded, which is a startup helping SMBs uh, manage their entire business 
automating processes from uh, invoicing and accounting, CRM, sales, inventory, and so on. I'm currently based in Barcelona, and uh, I've been previously uh, with Typeform, which is another SaaS startup that is quite popular and has uh, seen amazing growth. Prior to that, I was uh, for five years in Singapore, where I've been also helping um, startups go from uh, seed to Series B as well. And prior to that, I was in uh, Belgium and uh, a few other places like Portugal and Germany, where I had my own business and I ran a few nonprofit uh, organizations as well for fostering entrepreneurship. Right. Well, this is a really interesting. So what does VP of Growth do then? Uh, VP of Growth helps grow the revenue of the company, <laughs> I guess. Um, no, it's, <laughs> it's really true that in every company, um, this role is quite different. Uh, so it's it's a very valid question. Um, in our case, um, I I've been uh, taking all the commercial side, so marketing, sales, and CS, and we restructured in a way in which we are splitting cross-functional teams by following the user journey, so we can be more autonomous and achieve more. And we have a very good uh, relationship with product and engineering in a sense. And basically, uh, I'm looking after all the SaaS levers. So that's new business MRR, but also expansion MRR, churn and so on. Even ARPA, like, uh, for example, this year we had uh, quite an interesting project on uh, monetization. So the beauty of this is that when you're looking after all the levers, uh, you're making sure that you're not just increasing one at the expense of decreasing another one. Right, right. So, Adelina, you are part of the uh, masterclass uh, course uh, that uh, uh, yes. we are all anticipating to start uh, later in uh, December. And uh, and now I wanted to turn uh, for a minute to Robin uh, to explain what it's actually going to be like and uh, uh, why uh, did you actually decide to invite Adelina uh, to uh, to be one of the mentors. All right. Uh, thank you, Andre. So maybe a bit more background information uh, mm-hmm. about myself and the masterclasses and how I met Adelina. So first, I uh, wrote a book called Startup Survival, together with the founder and CEO uh, of Team Leader. And after the book, I started my own company um, because we saw great demand in the market for like starting entrepreneurs who wanted help. So that's why we organized a startup masterclass where starting entrepreneurs could learn from like top-notch entrepreneurs and luckily it was successful uh so successful that we decided to organize a scale-up masterclass specifically for uh, founders and c-levels who are in much more uh, mature growth stage and we uh, co-organize it together with Vleric business school for over three years I've been organizing it for like more than 150 uh, SaaS companies and and other kind of uh, fast-growing companies in in Europe. And then we started to develop new uh, kind of masterclasses. Indeed, this one is the Marketing Leadership Masterclass, uh, specifically for like marketing uh, managers, team leads marketing, and marketing directors who learn from like VP marketing, VP growth, CMOs. uh, And Adelina is one of our experts in uh, this masterclass. 
funny short story is how we met because thanks to Matthias Ketonen and Juliana Mendes, who are a head of growth marketing at Typeform and head of growth at Lanes and Planes, uh, they uh, introduced me uh, to uh, Adelina a few months ago in Barcelona. And I think it was the most beautiful setting that we could met each other because <laughs> we, uh, the first time we saw each other, we ate some tapas at the beach and like, uh, yeah, it was a, <laughs> a really great way to, to meet each other. So yeah, that's the story behind all of it. You know, sitting in the very gloomy and rainy north of the Netherlands right now and uh, listening about tapas on the beach <laughs> makes me really jealous. I'm going to think about it for another week. Anyway, for now, uh, Adelina, I read the uh, stories uh, that uh, Robin uh, posted uh, based on conversations with you about your uh, framework in uh, leading a business. So can you maybe expand a little bit on that and uh, tell me on a very, in a very sort of uh, high uh, level what your approach was when you came to hold it and uh, what did you do first? Uh, yes, so I actually started applying this framework from the interview process, not uh, after I joined. So I always found it quite interesting that uh, <laughs> when we interview, we just focus on our background, but we never really dive deeply into like what the company needs and what would be your approach to it. Because of course, different candidates would have a very different approach. And then you need to see if you are actually in alignment with, with the management and with the investors and so on. So I think I kicked off that framework from that stage. And of course, it was refined after. I'm going to describe it a little bit. But uh, first, I'm going to cover some elements of like why even um, a new framework in a sense. Like I've been with startups where, um, and probably this will mm -hmm. sound very familiar, where uh, they would run OKRs or they would run sprints or they would run all this kind of uh, things, right? They're like very popular nowadays with startups. But when you look at it, they are so disparate that they are not really connected and there are some missing pieces of the puzzle. For example, when you do sprints, they are very good for um, execution when once you know what you have to do. But what you're missing is something that helps you define and prioritize what do you do even in the first place and how do you have a longer plan that is not too specific. So it still allows you for agility, but it kind of helps teams have more clarity on where they are going. I've been actually once in a startup in Singapore where the CTO had um, a speech that still uh, resonates with me. When you have the people in the team working on the daily tasks, they might miss the bigger picture. So he was like, do you feel like you're uh, putting down bricks or you're building the China wall? Uh, so it's a, it's a constant reminder of like, what's the China wall before we dive into the sprints of laying down the bricks? OKRs as well, like uh, very popular in most of the companies. It's a bit too either like monthly or quarterly. It just seems like it's not a right amount of time frame for being so specific because you are defining what you'll do and the numbers and everything. So it doesn't allow so much space for agility. And teams usually struggle to, to plan it well. There is a steep learning curve uh, that usually takes quite a bit. By that time, um, the teams get frustrated with how it's working and so on. So my proposal was just to like simplify everything and make sure that everything gets covered. And the framework that I'll be covering in this masterclass that Robin has uh, been referring to, it's basically three steps framework, where I'm basically saying, first, you focus on the effectiveness, not the efficiency. So basically, what is the China wall? And this is uh, what I call a focus timeline, which is not a plan. It's just like a timeline of challenges you are willing to tackle as a company. It always has to be, of course, based on data and feedback from the entire company. But in the end, the decisions 
are usually taken top down. So um, there are tough decisions to be taken in terms of like what challenge should be first and what challenge should be second and so on. And this one helps teams have clarity. It helps align all the management and the investors. It helps being strategic and data-driven, but at the same time, not prescriptive because it's not a plan. It's just basically saying, you know, over the next four or five months, we want to address this thing. So this really helps uh, on many aspects. Then the second part of the framework is basically uh, making sure you empower the teams to achieve that. So uh, in many cases, it means a reorganization. Usually team structures are just classic team structures or copying another company. Uh, rarely a company thinks of like, what do you want to achieve this year or next year and actually organize the teams around it. And actually these three works, especially in a startup uh, environment, should happen quite often, not massive reworks, but again, it's about like making sure that the teams can be as autonomous as possible to achieve those missions. Um, do you have all the skills needed inside? The classic structure would be split the team by specialty, which leads to, of course, by specialty, you cannot really achieve much because you need to collaborate with others. And that's how politics start usually, because everyone is trying to collaborate and achieve different things and, and so on. So it's basically avoiding all the politics, avoiding all the drama. Uh, by just making sure that once you have the the focus timeline, then you have an org chart that supports it for the time needed. And you can change it once a year, depending on what the focus timeline is, or you can do it even more often with some tweaks, depending on how you move from uh, one mission to another. And then the third step in the framework, it's basically the execution. So now that you have all this clear, how can you be more efficient? And now this is where um, the classic sprints and so on come in, like nothing sophisticated. Of course, there is still a lot of um, learning curve when you do that uh, across the company. So I think it's more uh, usually for development teams rather than for business teams. Uh, but it's like a lot of learnings there as well on how to do it. So in this masterclass, we are covering this framework with some uh, examples of how we did it at Holded and what we learned the hard way, pros and cons and so on. Right. Uh, can you give me an example of what did you actually achieve with this approach uh, at Holded? Uh, first of all, I would say that uh, we all experienced a, a COVID year, right, where there was a lot of business uncertainty. And I'm sure many people went back to the drawing table when this happened and they didn't even know how to replan it. Our first achievement was that by following this framework, we were actually, we didn't have to change anything. We still continued according to the plan because the plan was strategic enough in terms of what we needed, in terms of our finances and strategy and what would be a good option in terms of how to progress. But it wasn't specific enough to say what exactly we'll do. So at any given point, we could be really agile to to adjust uh, to this. During spring, for example, we were supposed to work on efficiency because that was for us what we thought it's the lowest hanging fruit at that point. And uh, that was a perfect match with the COVID situation. So it's mm -hmm. like, okay, then even more on efficiency, like business uh, unit economics and stuff like that. Now that we're in it and we knew the economical context, we could uh, really adjust to, to what's needed. So, for example, when we did the plan, we didn't foresee that we would have to reduce some budgets. When we started doing it because of the COVID situation, of course, like now we knew that we had to cut some budgets. But um, then the way we went around it was like, okay, all companies focused on this. And uh, even if we... Uh, 
cut budgets, we tripled on efforts because we were working on the unit economics. And actually, at the end of um, a few months, we basically managed to get the same number of customers by investing less. So the unit economy got into a so much better place. So we stuck to the plan, but at the same time, we were agile enough to know, okay, today this is the worst situation or whatever it is. So how do we incorporate this in it? And basically the teams felt throughout the year that there was not a too shaky boat, so to say. So they had the stability and they saw that we're still proceeding according to, to the plan and we're achieving amazing results. So that helped motivationally and financially and in, from any perspective. Right. Uh, Robin, a quick question uh, to you. Uh, so you see and uh, talk to uh, people who sign up for uh, the masterclass. Uh, does this situation that Adelina just described, does it actually reflect uh, their issues, their problems, what they're trying to trying to achieve uh, with uh, with this course and in general? Yeah, great question. So indeed, I see and talk to all the uh, potential marketing leaders who want to participate in the masterclass. And uh, we always talk about like their biggest challenges as a marketing leader. And we got some really interesting insights out of that. Like every marketing leader is connected to almost every department in a fast growing company, uh, meaning that they need to like influence uh, a lot of stakeholders, like work closely with sales, uh, convince them to, to collaborate better, work better with, with product and finance and HR. So yeah, in, indeed, they, they face exactly that challenge of like influencing other stakeholders and especially aligning them and make sure that they contribute to uh, the, the growth of the marketing team and then the story of the marketing team. And also uh, a really interesting uh, insight that we also got from the marketing leaders is that most of them don't necessarily have a background in marketing. And that is exactly why they are uh, so eager and so positive about uh, the masterclass because they want to learn like new fundamentals, make sure that what they are doing uh, is exactly the right thing. And so, yeah, long story short, like the influencing and uh, in, in alignment with the cross-functional uh, teams and departments is so crucial for every marketing leader. Yeah. Right. And yeah, since you mentioned uh, cross-functional teams, Adelina, this is something that you uh, talk about at length and it was really interesting uh, to read in one of uh, Robin's pieces. But then it kind of it kind of sounds like something that's not very easy to do in practice. So first of all, so uh, if I'm understanding correctly, you get these old teams like uh, marketing team, uh, I don't know, PR team, whatever other team, and then you just reshuffle them into new teams that are based on uh, on a different uh, sort of uh, on goals rather than uh, uh, rather than specialty. How does it work, and uh, how do people actually react when you do that? Yeah, so I know that it sounds like an ideal scenario for lots of uh, people working in companies, and at the same time, it's not a too classic scenario. Uh, but here are two practical tips. On one hand, before you even have to decide like a super restructure, like, okay, from now on, everyone in the company is cross-functional, which is a big change of mindset, you can do it on a mission basis. So um, what I said, once you define a focus timeline mm -hmm. and that's agreed between the, the management, you might see inside that, okay, our next mission might take, let's say, five months. What do we need to make it happen? And then you realize that between the, the leaders in the company, you would have to put some people working together. And that can be a temporary structure. And that's how people will start seeing the benefits of this. So it's a much easier start 
than thinking, okay, from now on ongoing, we're restructured cross-functionally. Um, the second thing, and especially in the startup, it's that you don't always have the resources to have fully cross-functional teams across the board. And I'll give you an example. In our case, this year, we only had one data analyst. Of course, in an ideal scenario, you would have different teams, each one with their own data and a lot of uh, different other specialties. So what do you do then? And um, this is, again, where the focus timeline helped because by agreeing what's the priority in the company of like what you're trying to solve, then you put these uh, resources where you don't have enough to place them in all the teams ongoing. Um, you just place them where you need them uh, according to the focus timeline. So this data analyst switch from mission to mission as we moved along. Next year, we're going to have data people uh, for all the teams, but that's a different situation. So these are the two things. Just start from a temporary um, reorg where you're just trying to solve something over the next few months based on a plan. And the second one is you don't always have to have all the specialties inside these cross-functional teams, but that's when the priorities in your planning will have, uh, come handy as well. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And uh, taking a step back towards that uh, focus timeline. So from what I was reading, it sounds like it takes a while to actually, I mean, it all depends on the size of the company, I suppose, but it sounds like it takes a while to define uh, the sort of timeline and uh, have it uh, confirmed and agreed by everyone uh, in the team. But at the same time, uh, right now, uh, in the times of uh, crisis, uh, we have been for a while now, it doesn't seem like all the startups have a lot of time to actually uh, to actually work on it. So how long did it actually take you and what would be a good way to, I don't know, speed it up? It's actually uh, quite fast. And this is because the secret is you just listen to the people that are there and then you look at data. It's basically what consultants do as well, right? They would go in a company, but you can start in different ways. You can start by not talking to anyone and you just try to figure out yourself and you look at data and you look at different things, that will take you long. But if you start by talking to people, so start talking to the founders, talk to the employees, um, the ones that were in the company for longer, which they've seen different things, the ones that are newer in the company and they come with fresh eyes and stuff like that. And then you get to a pretty clear idea and only then you look at data just to validate a few things and make sure you didn't miss something. That's in the end, like it took me um, one day during the interview process and a refinement of another three days after I joined. And that was it. Uh, so it's pretty straightforward. And it doesn't have to be because, again, it's just a priority of what you're going to try to tackle. Why in that order and how are you going to measure success? Nothing else. You're not going specifically saying, like, how are you going to solve it or anything? You leave that for once you are in that uh, time frame, and that's when you collaborate with different people in the companies to get it done. So it's actually pretty straightforward, and um, you'd be surprised by talking to the people in the company how clear the picture gets super fast. Uh, then we move to uh, to the third part, which is the sprints. And sprints, uh, as you as you said yourself, this is something that uh, uh, would be uh, uh, that, that could be something that uh, like the technical teams are. Uh, are used to, but then uh, you propose to use the same idea across uh, across uh, the non-technical uh, non-technical teams. Why sprints? Uh, why not just like I know normal work that we are we're all used to? Mm -hmm. 
simply because it allows for more agility. So you need to plan and replan quite quickly because you are learning so much. Like that you are usually running new projects that you haven't run before. You're getting new data, new insights, new learnings of any kind, even on how the process went or stuff like that. And it's super important to just break it down in sizable pieces, have this retrospective, see how users react to the different things you're doing. So, yeah, I'm not a fan of these big projects that like, yeah, we'll achieve this and we'll launch it in a year or so. So it's always um, these bite-sized pieces. Now, it's not uh, as straightforward as it sounds uh, because people tend to, you know, for example, not update everything in a, in a tool you're using for transparency, but just have some meetings to catch mm-hmm. up on the status or anything like that, right? So um, there are lots of challenges to, to tweak it, so to say. And I'll, I will cover that in the masterclass as well. But basically the gist is if the focus timeline gives you the effectiveness on what should you do when, this last part, it's on how are you now making it efficient? And this is where you constantly have to learn. So I was giving the example of how we were focusing on improving unit economics during spring and that coincided with the COVID times and refinancial planning. So basically, every two weeks, we're doing financial forecasts based on the latest changes we'll be doing to our advertising channels or other parts of the organization. So it's not if I would have done it in day one, like a plan for the three months during, we all know how it felt like March, April, uh, May, that that wouldn't be the case, right? So it allows you for this, okay, every two weeks. So how have we done? What have we learned? How is the world reacting? Things like that. Right. So yeah, this uh, to me this generally makes uh, uh, makes quite a bit of sense uh, this uh, solution and this uh, framework and I do hope that uh, uh, masterclass participants uh, will benefit from that as well. So to wrap this uh, conversation up, I wanted to ask one more question and this again comes from uh, some of my experience is that any system of this kind is only good and could only be useful if people everyone in the in the company buy into it so how do you achieve that how do you actually make people play ball and not just uh, stuck in their old uh, uh, ways of working because many of them would think p- perhaps that uh, that is a better way of doing things um as i said previously it's uh, for me before saying like oh from now on we're going to change indefinitely how we work and this is the thing it's basically taking it one step at a time so, you know, if you're a marketing leader, you would go back tomorrow, like, let's say you finished your masterclass and you go back to your company, you could start by just chatting with the other leaders in the company and saying, hey, guys, like, are we clear actually, like, on what are we trying to achieve at any given point throughout this year? Make sure you're all on the same page. Just from some brief discussions, you can say, okay, so this is more or less our focus timeline. And then do we have the team structure to support it? So not even thinking about all of them, but like the current or immediate mission, what teams usually collaborate? How can we make their life easier to collaborate faster? And then, okay, how do we have visibility on the process and how are we constantly iterating and learning? So it's like you you just, it's always breaking it in steps. I'm not a fan of like, let's change the mindset or like even at hold that like if we did this uh, last year, for next year, we're going to make some tweaks to it because we are evolving. So the example I gave on... um you might not have enough resources to put in every cross-functional team. Uh, but in our case for next year, we're going to hire more people. So now like the situation changes. So it, it's ultimately like, yeah, it's just adapting, adapting to your uh, growth path and also adapting to your company culture and everything. So 
never take anything as a given. Uh, just try to understand the pros and cons and see how it could help you and try it on on a small, biteable size. Right. Right. Okay. Last, last question, just to give uh, our listeners uh, something immediately useful. What is your favorite tool uh, that you're using uh, for uh, for this uh, for this work uh, for this uh, kind of approach? Well, it's folded actually. <laughs> <'Cause>, uh... <laughs> <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> so a part of Holded is actually project management. So for the third step in the framework, uh, we are actually using Holded ourselves. For all the rest, like focus timeline, it's basically a, a slide that we have with it. Uh, but it's a slide that we keep referring to every time. So we do a recap from time to time in the company meetings or when we start a new project, we refer back to it. So it's constantly a reminder of the bigger picture. Right. Well, makes it a great fit. Uh, well, thank you so much. Thank you so much for your time, Adelina. Uh, thank you, Robin, uh, for uh, being here today. Thanks a lot for joining and uh, uh, good luck with everything. Good luck at uh, Masterclass. Thanks for having us. Yes, thank you very much. And this is it for our today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. I do hope that you enjoyed it. Please help us spread the word, tell a friend or colleague about the show and follow our updates on Twitter at tech underscore EU. Audio engineering for this podcast is done by SoundPulse, that is sound-pulse.com. Please feel free to email us with any questions, suggestions, and opinions at podcast at tech.eu. I will talk to you again on Friday. In the meantime, stay safe, stay sane, and do take care. Bye-bye.